at chapter 1. And if you'll listen very closely tonight, you're going to be introduced to a, well, maybe not introduced, but you're going to hear uh, probably, if not the, you remember in the new members class, when you went through the new members class, we talked about some essentials. We talked about in, in, um, uh, in the essentials unity and the non-essentials liberty, but in all things charity. Well, tonight, is that thing supposed to be on, or does it just stay on and just burn a hole in the wall someplace? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, Tammy could have done that by remote. Um, but if you'll, you know, we talk about things that are non-essentials, and we talk about things that are essentials. If you'll listen tonight, you're going to hear one of those uh, three essentials that all of us must agree on, and in fact is, uh, is a, a, a very... Um, hotly, not so much debated, but uh, it is the formation and the foundation of just about every cult uh, there is. But before we get to that, I want to do some... Hi, Jim. Glad you could make it. Uh, we start at 7. Um, <laughs> uh, before we get to that, I wanted to um, mention just a couple of things that are less uh, theological, of less theological significance, but perhaps uh, no less important. I want you to go back with me as, I, as we wrap up a couple of things out of verse 2. Um, and uh, just draw your attention to that to verse 2 where he says, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, you know what? I, what I need to do is read the seven verses again. So let me, let me pause to do that real quickly. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're trying to work through uh, those seven verses before Christmas gets here. And um, uh, I, I want to take you back to the, just that uh, uh, verse 2 because there's, there's a piece of, uh, I, I think, uh, lack of clarity in the evangelical world uh, about something that is at least hinted by that verse, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, again, you know um, which the antecedent of that pronoun, that is, what is it that was promised uh, through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures? It was the gospel of God that was promised in the, uh, through his promise in the Holy Scriptures. Now, what is Paul alluding to? He is alluding to that which we call the Old Testament. And he is saying that that, that gospel is to be found in the Old Testament. And, and the confusion I'm alluding to is the confusion that exists about, and, and I think it was largely created by dispensationalism, and if you know anything about dispensationalism, you know how it separates uh, redemptive history, but, um, but there's a confusion about the validity and the value of the Old Testament. Um, gang, um, just, just to make a few brief little points, the Bible is one book, not two books. It is one book. Um, it is a complete book. The Old Testament was written by prophets who were moved by the Holy Spirit, and the New Testament was written by apostles in the same way. Um, this is one book, and not the newer, the newer portion is no more valuable to the Christian 
than is the Older Testament. Um, the, the Old Testament, I think, sometimes is almost viewed as, as good uh, devotional material. But ladies and gentlemen, the Old Testament is far more valuable to us than just as devotional material. I, I submit to you that there are portions of the New Testament that you will never understand until you understand the Old Testament. For instance, the entire book of Hebrews. You will never grasp and understand what's, being, what's going on in the book of Hebrews if you do not understand the, the, the Old Testament and its great import to the believer. Gang, um, uh, this, this line of demarcation that has been drawn between the two Testaments is, is, is somewhat terribly unfortunate. For instance, um, when it comes to the whole debate, have you ever entered this debate about lordship salvation? Have you seen that debated in the evangelical world? Oh, my friends, it's debated. I mean, there's a book written here, and then a book written in reply, and another book written in another book in reply, and about this issue of lordship salvation. Well, part of the, part of the problem in not understanding that issue, I think, comes from not understanding the validity of the Old Testament. Because as you, under, as you realize, the Old Testament has a great deal of emphasis placed on obedience. And, um, and those who would suggest that you can have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord, the thing that suffers, of course, is this emphasis upon obedience. That somehow you can nod in the direction of Jesus and get a ticket to heaven stuck in your pocket and get sprayed with a coat of asbestos and head on to heaven, but have no concern whatsoever about a changed life. Well, I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that position, theologically, is a, is a stepchild of misunderstanding the role of the Old Testament. So, gang, if you, if you eliminate, um, if, you, if you subtract the Old Testament from Christianity, you come up with something that's very truncated and immaculated. This is one book, and it needs to be treated like that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the, the salvation that is described in the New Testament does indeed fulfill the law. It does not, however, make void the law. L let me show you just a, a verse that we'll get to in three or four years. Um, in Romans 3, if, you're, if your Bibles are still open, uh, find that if you can. Romans 3, let me read you verse 31, or you follow as I read it to you. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Gang, um, this, this, this differentiation that is made between gospel and law is an unfortunate, an unfortunate differentiation and I think some of it comes because of not understanding that the Old Testament is, is to be very much a part of, of our religious diet. You know, I've said this before, and I, and I, I, I risk being misunderstood because I, I really want to applaud the work of Wycliffe Bible translators, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, they, they have done a great service to the kingdom of God by translating the Bible into languages that didn't have it. But as you know, because of the, the lack of manpower, really, Wycliffe Bible translators normally translate the New Testament and the New Testament alone. And I say to you, 
If you read the New Testament without being trained with Old Testament eyes, you will miss it. You will miss much of it. And, and so, guys, uh, I, I think what, I mean, you can draw that conclusion by simply this, the simple statement that Paul makes in verse 2, that this is something that was promised in that book. And everything that you needed to, to know about this gospel can be found in that book. Of course, I, I allude to the Old Testament. Um, let, me, let me just read you, let me show you one other text that in the book of Romans that we'll, um, we'll get to one day. But it's in Romans 15. This is how you are to view and understand the role of the Old Testament in the life of the believer. Um, Romans 15, 4. Great statement. For whatever things were written before were written for, your, for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Ladies and gentlemen, all this was written for your benefit, for your learning, for your um, edification, so that hope might be the result. Do not in any way devalue and depreciate the role of the, the, the Old Testament. You know, there, there are those um, who would try to pit the Old Testament against the New, saying that um, the Old Testament just describes the religion of the Jews, and the New Testament describes something. Ladies and gentlemen, that is, that is damaging. If I, if I could say that even more firmly, any interpretation that you make of the New Testament that contradicts an understanding of the Old Testament is a wrong interpretation. Whatever you get out of the New Testament must coincide. It must be consistent with. It must be a part of something that could be founded and rooted in the Old Testament. Because it was, it was, the Bible was arranged in a way that you had to read this part before you got to that part. And, and it's arranged for a reason. So that you can get a fuller and richer and deeper uh, fulfilled understanding of the gospel that was somewhat uh, cloaked in the, in the Old Testament. But it's there nonetheless. Please, don't ever make the mistake. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, in your devotional life, if you concentrate in the New Testament, I'm all for you. But you need to add something from the Old. Um, I, I've said this numerous times, and this is one of my biases, but go into the average Christian bookstore and, um, and look for books on the second person of the Trinity, and you'll find lots of them. Go into the average bookstore and look for books on the third person of the Trinity, and you'll find boo-coodles of them. But go into an average Christian bookstore and look for a book on the first person of the Trinity, and you will look long and hard. Now tell me, where is it that the first person of the Trinity is most completely depicted? It's the Old Testament. And if you have an understanding of your religion without a sense of, of the first person of the Trinity, your understanding is emasculated. You must go there as you proceed to the New Testament. That's, that's really the only point I wanted to make. One other thing before we get to that, that great theological necessity, and just kind of a piece of speculation on my part, um, I offer this, um, I'm not sure if it's going to be greatly beneficial to many, but uh, has the question ever occurred to you why there was such a delay between the fall and the, and the cross? You know, the, the fall that, was, um, uh, that occurred 
in Genesis 3. And then, of course, some maybe 2,000 years later, the cross occurs. Why the delay? Why the long interval from fall to the cross? Why, why, why all this Old Testament history when God could have made provision immediately? Why, why do you think this knowledge of God was basically confined to one race of people for 2,000 years? Why, why this long delay? Well, I want to suggest that there are a couple of reasons, folks, that you get this this laborious, almost, um, uh, recounting of the history of a nation, of Israel, before we ever see the Son of Man come. Two reasons, and, and they're, they're basically related. Ladies and gentlemen, it takes God, I mean, I'm not sure he could have done it quicker, but it seems that in his mind, he took 2,000 years of Old Testament history to reveal just how bad sin really was just how awful and terrible a thing sin is. It, it, it is God's way of revealing over those 2,000 years the depths of sin. It is, it is his way of proving to us that any attempt at man saving himself is going to be futile. And man, in his pride, sure tried. I mean, he tried to be saved by obedience to the law and failed. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 about um, through worldly wisdom, you didn't come to know him. Let, let me show you, um, if you can find real fast, John 5. Um, it's kind of a tragic statement. Um, I'm in John 5, verse 38. But you do not have his word abiding in you because, uh, John 5, 38, yeah, because uh, whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures. And again, what scriptures were they searching? They were searching the Old Testament. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, guys, these are the folks who were the experts. These weren't some uh, Johnny-come-lately laity. These were the experts of the law. And you know what they did? They studied and they studied and they studied and they still missed it. Tragic display of of just how blind sin has rendered us. And uh, even though you're going to find or look for all kinds of ways to, um, to save yourself, all attempts are futile. And God takes 2,000 years to try and convince you that indeed that is the case. Now, uh, those are just two little things I wanted to wrap up before we move on to verses 3 and 4. So let me... Let me go back and read you verses 3 and 4 because there's a piece of Pauline genius here, and I, and I want you to see it before the night's over. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of the Holy Resurrection. We're going to see if we can cover both of those verses in the next 20 minutes, so kind of um, buckle up. First of all, guys, um, uh, this, this gospel that Paul says he was separated unto uh, which came through the Old Testament, promised through the, uh, the prophets of the whole Old Testament. Um, what is this gospel? What, what, what gospel are you talking about? In fact, ladies and gentlemen, if you could, in your mind, you can almost reduce these sentences to something like this. The gospel which he promised. All right, Paul, what kind of gospel was it? Concerning 
his son. The first thing that we must know is that the gospel that Paul was separated unto was a gospel that concerns his son. It, it, it has at the very center of it the Son of God. There is, ladies and gentlemen, no Christianity without this Christ. The gospel does not start with our need. It does not start by trying to depict and describe how bad off our situation is. The gospel starts with Christ, this gospel concerning his son. You know, ladies and gentlemen, you can take Buddha out of Buddhism and you still have Buddhism. You can take Confucius out of Confucianism and you still have Confucius. But you can't do that with Christianity. Because if you take Christ out of this Christianity, it is, it is gutted. And gang, those who seek to live some kind of morally pure life in hopes that, the, that heaven's door will be open to them are those who are attempting to do that very thing. Christianity is not depicting a certain kind of lifestyle. I, I'm telling you guys, I, I had a, an occasion in a luncheon just recently with a guy who I work out with, and we just decided to go grab a bite to eat. And uh, the issue of smoking a cigarette came up. And, and you know, guys, I don't smoke. I've never smoked. And I think if you smoke, you're not very smart. Um, <clears throat> You know, I, I just can't imagine how it can just kind of eat up your lungs and we can go ahead and do that. But, but do you understand that the gospel is not about anti-smoking? It is not about anti-drinking. It is not about anti-abortion. The gospel is about Christ concerning his son. And, and we have so disgusted the thing such that the culture out there thinks that us, we Christians, we're just people who don't smoke and don't chew and don't go out with girls who do. That, that's their understanding of us, ladies and gentlemen. The conversation started on the Stairmaster. We were just talking about it, and I, and I looked at him and I said, you know, you know, that's a sad thing that you just said there. I try to be as nice and as gentle as I possibly could, but <clears throat> Christianity is not that. I don't want you to walk away from here thinking that. Don't leave here thinking that, yes, I'm a Christian, and I'm a, I'm a Christian because I don't smoke. No. Because this gospel, ladies and gentlemen, concerns the sun. Um... Now, who is this son? He goes on to tell us, first of all, he is God's son. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here is the piece of Pauline genius that I want you to see in the next 10 minutes, uh, maybe a little longer. Um, <clears throat> Paul does two things here, and do you know this term? Um, if you don't know this term, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to, be, you're about to get it. See, Dale was so cute, and then he hands me something that doesn't write. Do you know what the term Christology is, ladies and gentlemen? There are three essentials that we, that we point out in, in Grace Demand. If you don't believe these things, you probably ought to go join the, you know, the church on the way or something. But um, the Trinity, Christology, and salvation by grace through faith alone, those are the three essentials that we talk about. The Trinity, I think you know something about. Christology. Christology, ladies and gentlemen, is wrapped up in verses 3 and 4. 
the whole person of Christ is defined for you in verses 3 and in 4. Do you know what the summary of Christology is? It is simply this. Uh, one nature, two persons. Excuse me. One person, two natures. That is Christology. One person, two natures. Let me show them to you in verse 3. Um, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So when it comes to um, um, his, his body and when it comes to his human form according to the flesh, he was born as a relative of David's. He was, he was in the line of David, of the seed of David. Remember back in Genesis 3 when it talks about the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent, you know? Well, here he is in his human form. He is a relative of David's um, and, and as such enjoys complete and full manhood. Remember the statement in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus has just uh, rebuked his mother uh, saying, didn't you know I was supposed to be about my father's business? And then the last statement of Luke 2 says, and Jesus grew in, in, uh, in favor with man, in, uh, in stature and wisdom, and in favor with man. Everything that men did, he did. Stay thin. According to his human nature, he was a relative of David's. By the way, just uh, somewhat of an aside. You know, Judaism today um, still is waiting for the Messiah to come. Actually, um, they're still waiting. Have you ever been to a Seder? Uh, a Passover meal? You know, there's an empty chair at that, at that Seder meal. There's a chair that they leave empty. You know who that's for? That's not for the Messiah. That's for Elijah. <laughs> Elijah hadn't even made it yet. So they're still waiting for Elijah. But Elijah's got to get here and then, the, and then the Messiah. And then the Messiah, of course, is agreed upon by all, is, of course, going to be a descendant of David's. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, that if a Messiah, this is somewhat heretical what I'm about to say, but there is no way that Judaism can ever again trace anybody who, uh, if a Messiah were to appear tomorrow, there is no way that they can trace his lineage back to David, but we can. You remember that little census in Luke chapter 2? Well, we can at least prove that the one we claim to be the Messiah is indeed a descendant of David. After year 70, when all of Jerusalem was torched by the Romans, all genealogical records destroyed and gone. If their Messiah was to show up tomorrow, they couldn't prove he was a descendant of David. But we can. I just think that's an interesting little dilemma in which Judaism finds itself. They couldn't prove it if they tried. But now you can reject our Messiah, but at least we can prove he's a descendant of David. We got a census. And of course, we don't have the census. But, but those who lived in the, uh, the, during the lifetime of Jesus did have that census that they could consult. But anyway, in concerning his human form, ladies and gentlemen, uh, he was a descendant of David. Now, here is what I hope you will see is a piece of Pauline genius. Look at the difference. What Paul does is contrast the human side of Jesus with his divine in verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, etc. Now, guys, notice. When it comes to his human side, he was born as the seed of David. But when it comes to his divine side, he wasn't born. He didn't become 
uh, he became the son of David, but he did not become the son of God because he always was. And so the word that Paul chooses, he was declared not become, he wasn't born into it. He was declared to be, by the resurrection, we'll talk about that in a minute, but it is, what he is doing is, you've got the, the, in his human form in verse 3, you've got his deity in verse 4. And there is a contrast. He was born as the seed of, in the seed of David, but he was declared to be the Son of God. Now, notice also, the text says, um, declared to be the Son of God. Not a son of God. And I, and I checked the Greek language today, and there is the definite article. Um, it's in there. It's a three-letter word, T-O-U. It's, uh, it's in there. The son of God. You do know that Mormonism said that Jesus ultimately became the son of God as a result of his doing good. And that you can become one too. He is a son of God. Well, the text says he was the son of God with power according to the Spirit of hope. Three quick things, uh, guys. Um, um, this, this business about um, with declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. This, this little prepositional phrase, with power, is a Greek word dunamis, which means is a Greek word from which we get our English word dynamite. It's simply suggesting that, that he is declared categorically and absolutely, forcefully, powerfully. He was declared powerfully to be the Son of God, uh, according to the Spirit of Holiness. Now, guys, if, if your Bible has the word Spirit capitalized, it has somewhat misled you, I think. Um, the normal term for Holy Spirit is not there. This is, a, this is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. This is uh, what they call a hapax legomena, which means it's the only time in the New Testament that it's ever found like this. And let me, let me show you what I think uh, Paul has in mind. Keep your thumb there and turn with me to Luke 8. In my devotions this morning, I saw this, and I thought this will really illustrate well, I think, what he's saying. See if you can find Luke 8 real quick. This is the story about Jesus raising this little 12-year-old girl of the, uh, of the uh, priests and bringing her back to life. This is in uh, Luke 8 um, and verse 54. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Here it is in verse 55. Then her spirit returned. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is the spirit that is in view in verse 4 of, of Romans 1. That is, the spirit inside Jesus is holy. The spirit inside you isn't. Uh, the spirit inside us isn't. Um, it is simply a contrast between this uh, according to the flesh, um, this, this spirit that was in Christ uh, is a spirit of holiness. Uh, our spirit, as I said, is not his is because he is the Son of God. Um, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let's spend our last five minutes on that little uh, couple of prepositional phrases. Um, guys, the resurrection declares Jesus to be the Son of God. Um, it doesn't make him the Son of God. If I could illustrate like this. 
um, one day soon, we're going to have a mayoral, mayoral election here in the city. Actually, we're in Germantown or whatever we're in. But if you live in Memphis, you're going to elect yourself a mayor. Um, um, then when those votes are tallied, somebody is going to step to a podium and declare the winner. But it is not the declaration that makes this man the mayor. The votes did that. The declaration doesn't make Jesus anything. The declaration simply makes it public. And what is it that made public his deity? It was the resurrection. Gang, um, while Jesus, or before the resurrection, Jesus lived basically like a king in, in incognito. It was, there was so much about his flesh, uh, so much about him that was hidden. We sing in Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, you know that song? Uh, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Well, th there is a, there's deity, but veiled. So much about him was, was not yet known. And yet, the, 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 the resurrection made public for everyone who he really was. It, was, it didn't make him anything. It simply brought to light what had been veiled during life. One text I want you to see and we're finished. I want you to turn to John 17 and with this we'll stop. John 17, as you know, is, is what's called, what's known as the high priestly prayer. Um, we, on occasion, uh, use the Lord's Prayer in our worship services here at Grace. Um, we used to not do that. And, um, and somebody came to me and said, you know, uh, why don't you use the Lord's Prayer? And I said, well, you know, it's just a whole bunch of tradition that I've been brought up with. And, I just, and he looked at me and said, the Lord's Prayer in tradition? That's the New Testament. I thought, oops, um, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to use the New Testament, isn't it? So anyway, we incorporate the Lord's Prayer in our worship services from time to time because basically I don't want your children to not know it either. I want your children to grow up knowing what the Lord's Prayer is. But the point is, that's not really the Lord's Prayer. That's the one he taught us to pray. But he never prayed that one. But he does pray this one. This is called a high priestly prayer. This is only moments, hours before he's crucified, and he stands before his Father and he prays. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing is richer than a study of how the Son of Man prays and what he says in this, in this high priestly prayer. But I want you to notice something that he says. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I didn't become the Son of God by dying on a cross. I didn't become the Son of God by being baptized in the River Jordan. In fact, I've always been the Son of God. And I set that aside for a time. I set it aside so that I could become the mediator. But now that is almost accomplished. So, Father, 
you and I shared. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a demonstration once again of the deity of Christ. You have in, a, you have in two verses a summation of one of the absolute essentials of the Christian faith. It is known as Christology. And you get in these two texts one statement of his flesh and his human nature followed by and contrasted with a statement of his deity in verse 4. Now, just one quick thing. Perhaps you can understand why I want to move so slowly through this text. I, I hope none of you are disappointed at the pace. But ladies and gentlemen, you don't need to miss things as important as Paul's genius in stating issues of Christology. Okay, guys, um, if you need to get, it's time to go. That is, if you're in the choir and um, or um, got a meeting to go to, it is time to jet. And then I'll close us with prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a, in a world that has um, multiplied error included in it. People who have stated that Jesus really wasn't flesh and he really wasn't God. And um, here we find again stated so succinctly with such brilliance the, um, the simple truth that Jesus was uh, was a was born, and yet it was deity crammed into a womb. It was deity that set aside its rights and its privileges, so that um, the servant Christ could come and die in the place of his people. And I pray, O oh God, that. Um, your, your people in this room would be further armed with confidence about uh, what we believe and at least where it is taught in this glorious book. Lord, give us uh, the kind of uh, appreciation of it that doesn't become an idolatry of a book, but it does become a, a, um, a love-life relationship with the God who wrote this book. Now, Father, dismiss us with a sense of your encouragement. Um, mercy drops around us or falling, but it showers the blessings we need. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys, and good night.